Hi, this is Chris Sorensen. Welcome to Brookville Road Community Church Podcast. If you haven't done so already, please take a moment to check out our website at brookvilleroad.cc for all the latest information about what's going on at Community Church. I hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in becoming a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. So good to see you guys. Glad that you're here, that you've chosen to gather into the house of God and worship with one another. My name's Chris. I'm, I'm just one of the people on the team here at the church. It's a blessing to be one of the pastors. Again, so good to see you. Now, here at our church, uh, what we do, we're here to inspire people to become wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ who love God, who love the church, and love the world. And then very practically, the way that we live out loving uh, God and loving the church and loving the world, we talk about spending our time the right way, and we want to have God time and group time and go time. God time is that time that you and I spend with him personally. We open up our scripture. Uh, I would encourage you to take 1% of your day, just start with 15 minutes out of your day and open up God's word and and read it for yourself. Uh, Interact with him in prayer. We gather together to worship God like this about 1% of our week. We gather here around an hour and a half or so every week just to corporately bless God. And then we, we gather in groups. Group time is really important that we wanna just sit in rows and stare at the back of the head in front of us, but we'd get to know one another, and we could encourage one another and sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron, and so we encourage you to get involved in in a group, in a small group. If you've not done that yet, you can go to the website, click on that group tab, and you'll be directed through that, or you can see Pastor Paul, and he'll he'll walk you through that process too. Another big part of what we do is go time, that we would take 2% of our year, uh, we'd take about a week out of our year, and we would be intentional about serving our community locally and globally, that we would actively be participants in what's happening around us, sharing the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, We do that in tangible ways. The coats that we've got over here is one way that we do that, just very tangibly to tell people that they're loved and we love our community. Uh, We've gone out uh, throughout different quarters of the year and we serve in our communities and uh, we encourage small groups to do the same kind of thing. And then we have short-term mission trips that we take from time to time as well. So we're really a mission-minded church. So uh, if you're uh, dipping your toe into this church, trying to figure out what we're all about. We're all about getting outside of these walls, not just coming in here, spending an hour, hour and a half, and just kind of sitting in a row, but really actively being participants in spreading the gospel good news of Jesus Christ all over the world. We have a lot of missionaries, a lot of church planters. Uh, we plant churches. We're building churches in India right now. Uh, it, we're, we're building a new sanctuary for ourselves because we believe that God is going to continue to allow us to make an impact in our community to share the good news of Jesus Christ. He will transform them, change them. They become adopted into his family, never to be the same, to be changed by the power of God. So that's what we're about, and uh, I, I'm glad that you get to be a part of this. Now, uh, as a church that's involved in Go, in missions, uh, we have an active mission committee, and we get reports from a lot of our missionaries and our church planters, and every now and then, we have them stop in. This last week, when we got together as a mission committee, we had one of our our missionary partners come in. We had Dan Miller come in uh, with somebody that he's ministering alongside. Uh, This young man's name is Abdullah, and Abdullah is um, uh, in in a region in Africa. I don't want to get too specific, but he's in a a region of Africa, and God has uh, grabbed hold of his heart in a very powerful, dramatic way. He was Muslim, uh, but God grabbed a hold of him through uh, a dream and then through scripture and uh, the witness of other believers. Now, in his uh, home area there in Africa, there is a crackdown on churches. They are locking up every church, that people won't be able to gather in church buildings. 
And in fact, the day that we were meeting with Abdullah, his uh, pastor, he had seen on video, his pastor being beaten by the police. But none of that deters Abdullah. He doesn't live in that region just yet, but he is moving to that region, to that state. And he's moving there in the face of opposition and persecution because he loves the Lord Jesus and he feels called by God to minister the love of Jesus to others and to spread the good news. And I look at Abdullah and just his faith and it, it encourages me and reminds me, yeah, that's, that's what a Christian is. That's what a Christian does. It's not just something we, you know, we stick a label on ourselves and show up at a church. No, this is, this is our identity. And so, um, you know, we've got this mission conference that's going to be happening at, at Greenwood, and we're going to talk about our, our churches that we're building in Brazil, and I'd encourage you to take part in that, in that Living Stones weekend. But on Thursday night, uh, October, what is it, the 25th? Is that Thursday? Uh, no, 24th, October 24th, uh, Thursday at 6.30 at, Green, or at Brandywine, our daughter church, we're going to have a world renewal global mission celebration. And the speaker there is going to be an individual by the name of Emily Foreman. Emily Foreman is, was on the mission field in Africa as well, in a highly Muslim area. And 10 years ago, her husband uh, was gunned down by Al-Qaeda extremists for being a Christian. Uh, she'll be talking Thursday night. Uh, I believe you'd be encouraged by her testimony. She's written a book called uh, We Died Before We Came Here. And so uh, I, I look at these individuals and I, I hear about persecution and, and people being killed for their faith. And sometimes I think to myself, I wonder when that's gonna happen to us. I wonder when persecution will come our way. I wonder, I wonder when it will be that I get in trouble for standing up here and talking about sin and what the Bible has to say. That there really is sin that the Bible talks about, that adultery and homosexuality and anything else that, that we talk about, it's culturally not... Uh, uh, palatable to people, but it's God's word, and we have to stand and we have to speak the truth. And I think about that kind of persecution, and in my own heart and mind, it brings a level of uncertainty. And anytime you have a level of uncertainty, you have a little bit of fear that gets mixed in there. And for some of you, uh, this whole idea of uncertainty and fear being linked, you, you would be able to say that because of fear uh, and uncertainty, it drove you to make some really poor decisions. Maybe you made some poor decisions in a relationship. Maybe you were afraid, you know, like, I, I'm not quite sure I'll, I'll ever get married. I want to be married, and I know this person isn't a believer. I'm a believer, but I'm going to go ahead and marry them anyway. And then down the road, because you weren't necessarily moving in the same direction, you had strain and, and strife within your relationship. Maybe you'd say, because of fear, it drove me to an addiction. I wanted to, to meet a need in my life. I, things weren't stable for me, and so I turned to a drink or I turned to a pill. For others of you, you'd say, uh, it was fear that drove me to a poor financial decision. I saw what was happening in the stock market. I just kind of thought, oh boy, everything's kind of crumbling and I made a poor financial decision. You, some of you might be able to say that your deepest, greatest regret is tied back to this idea of not being able to manage the fear and the uncertainty in your life. And so for that reason, uh, we're, we're talking about uncertainty. I've written a book and, and some of you are reading through that. And last week, we talked about the very first part of, of the book, what do we do when we face uncertainty in our lives? And I encouraged us from Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7, to pray. And it sounds simple, I know. But not just to pray simple prayers, not just to pray, God, help me, bless me, you know, get me out of this jam, but to dig down deep when you find yourself in a trial and to find the fear that is underlying the uncertainty, and not to just simply stop and say, well, I'm afraid that I might lose my job, or I'm afraid that I might have cancer. 
but to pull back the layers of the uncertainty and the fear and get down to the very base where there is a desire. Underneath your uncertainty and fear is a desire, a longing. And in your life and in my life, God has not made us so that we would be self-sufficient so that we can control all of our lives. He has made us in such a way so that we would find all of our sufficiency and every one of our needs met in him. And so when you find that desire, I encourage you to take that in prayer and to go to your heavenly father and to put that in his outstretched hands. You place into God's hands that which only a God's hands can hold. And in his other outstretched hand, he offers you peace. So that's where we were last week. This week, as we talk about fear and uncertainty, we're gonna go to the Old Testament and we're gonna open up our Bibles to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17. Now in 1 Kings chapter 17, we find an individual there. His name is Elijah. And Elijah is a prophet, a pretty powerful prophet. Uh, a prophet is somebody who not just foretells the future, a prophet is one who foretells. Thus saith the Lord. And Elijah is a powerful prophet. And during Elijah's time, there was a king by the name of Ahab, King Ahab. And he was not a good king. He, he was a very poor king. In fact, uh, the Bible says that he, he did more evil than all the other kings before him. And uh, Ahab, though, he was married to a very sweet, uh, benevolent woman by the name of Jezebel. And uh, God, God wasn't real happy that he married Jezebel. The reason he's not happy about it is because God instructed his people, I don't want you to marry foreign people. Not because God is racist, it is because foreign people were worshiping different gods. And he said, I want you to be pure, I want you to love me and obey my commandments. And if you marry outside of this faith, they are going to woo your heart away from me. And sure enough, in the people of Israel, time and time again, they would stray from God, they were intermarry, and then the influence of the world, the influence of other religions would seep in and their hearts would wander from the one true God because they were more interested in what they wanted. They were more interested in their selfish desires than in finding all of their desires met in the one true God. And sure enough, Ahab marries Jezebel. And Jezebel brings along with her her foreign gods, one of which is a god by the name of Baal, a false god. Now, Baal, you may have heard of him before. Baal is a, a god of nature. So he, he's a god of fertility, the god of, of wind and rain. And the nation then begins to follow Baal. Ahab, again, terrible king. He's really just a puppet Jezebel is pulling the strings and now the nation of Israel is wandering away from God and they're following a God, a false God that scratches that selfish itch for them and they're wandering from the true God. So God has enough. And so he talks to his prophet Elijah. He says, Elijah, I want you to go to Ahab and I want you to tell him that he's got to shape up. There's consequences coming. Because your heart has strayed and because of your sins, I'm going, to, I'm going to take all the rain away. For three years, God removes the rain. So he instructs Elijah to go to Ahab. This is where we fix up, or pick up rather in 1 Kings chapter 17. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The next verse says, and the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook and I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. 
So Elijah, he, he does his job. He goes uh, in front of King Ahab, you know, gives him this hard, challenging word. There's not gonna be any rain. God is bringing a consequence to you. And then God sends Elijah out to kind of wander in the wilderness to be in the wilderness for a period of time. But while he's in this wilderness, there's a brook, a stream that runs right through there, and he's gonna be taken care of by drinking this water. And not just that, <clears throat> God's gonna provide for his needs by having ravens feed him. This doesn't mean that he's going to be eating ravens because that would be gross. I'm pretty sure that tastes bad. Um, these are ravens that are going to be his maitre d'. These are, these are waiters. They're bringing bread and, and meat and they're like, hey, try the gray stuff. It's delicious. Don't ask us. Ask the other ravens, whatever. So these are ravens miraculously feeding Elijah. And then in verse seven it says, and after a while, the brook dried up. You know why it dried up? There's no rain. Because there was no rain in the land, just as God had said. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah again. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So again, middle of a drought, middle of a difficult time, and God is providing for all of the needs of Elijah. First, birds are feeding him, and now a widow is gonna take care of all of his needs. Meanwhile, King Ahab is pretty upset. He's upset and he sends out his people looking everywhere for Elijah, which is kind of weird because Elijah uh, isn't causing this. Elijah is just the messenger of this news that Ahab has been a jack wagon, if you will, and they have strayed from God. And so Ahab, he's sending out his people to look for Elijah. But interestingly enough, Elijah, where is he? It said he's in Zarephath, in Sidon. That's Jezebel's hometown. God has been providing and taking care of Elijah right under their nose, right in Jezebel's hometown. He's protecting them all this time. Verse, uh, verse one of chapter 18 says this. After many days... So he's at the widow's place. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. In the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So three years, no, no water, big drought. God has been providing for Elijah and now God is sending him back to angry Ahab, the guy who wants to kill him, the guy who would love to see this God man dead. And so Elijah in faith begins to make his way toward Ahab because he was told. And so as he's on his way to go find Ahab, Elijah bumps into his old buddy Obadiah. Now Obadiah is a godly man and he still is employed by King Ahab. And so Elijah bumps into Obadiah. He says, hey, Obadiah, I'm on your, or my way to go see your boss, the king. Would, would you go tell him that I'm on my way? And Obadiah's like, <laughs> no. Forget it. I'm not gonna tell Ahab that you're coming to see him because everybody's looking to kill you, Elijah, and if God calls you someplace else and you're not here, they're going to kill me. And Elijah says, hey, dude, don't, don't sweat it. They're buddies, they go way back. Hey, dude, don't sweat it. I'm really gonna talk to the king. Go find him, tell him I want to meet him. In verse 16, it says this. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Ahab, the guy who wants to kill Elijah. Next verse, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. 
Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So this is really interesting. He, he, is, he is throwing the gauntlet down. Elijah says, gather up all of these false prophets. Let's meet. Let's meet at Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel, uh, I've been there before. It's a beautiful mountain, very tall mountain. And he says, get all of Israel, gather them there at the mountain, get these 850 false prophets, and I'm going to meet with them. Now, this is one of the times in Scripture where I just love reading God's Word and, and then allowing my imagination to kind of put me in that place and picture what is going on. And when I read this account, I always see it in my mind playing out like a, like a Western, a country Western movie. Anybody here Western fans? You just love a good Western movie? Uh, as you know, I'm not a country music fan, but give me a good Western, and yeah, I'm, I'm in. I like that. And so I see Elijah here kind of as this really kind of tough cowboy, like with a leather face and just like, uh, you know, kind of Clint Eastwood kind of like terminology and, and voice. And so I see him walking up to Ahab and just being like, you get your posse and you tell him to meet me on the street at high noon. I don't know why, but Clint Eastwood, he's always like hard to deliver the line. It's like, it, that's just too much work. Let me just shoot somebody. We'll be done with it. Why do we need to talk? So he's saying, get your posse together. Let's meet on Mount Carmel because now there is going to be a showdown. So from verse 20 of chapter 18 and on, we have a showdown of Elijah squaring off against these 850 false prophets. So go ahead and put a, a white old cowboy hat on Elijah. Put 850 black cowboy hats on all of the false prophets. And Elijah meets them there at Mount Carmel. All the prophets are kind of up toward the peak. Everybody else in Israel is kind of watching what's going on. And, and they, they want to see what's happening because this is a showdown. This is a Western movie in front of them. They want to see what happens. And so Elijah meets them there on Mount Carmel. And he says this, I know, let's have a contest. Here's the contest. Let's build two altars. And we'll put our sacrifice on the altar. You put your sacrifice on your altar. I will put my sacrifice on my altar. But let's not light it on fire. Let's ask our gods to light it on fire. And the God that answers by fire is the true God. And everybody's like, yeah, that sounds good because everybody in Israel wants to watch the showdown. And the 850 prophets are so full of themselves and so sure that Baal is gonna show up, light that on fire. They say, that sounds good to us. And so they begin. The false prophets, they build their altar and they start praying and they start singing and they start dancing and they start chanting and carrying on, but there's no answer. No God is responding to them in this moment. And I picture Elijah now, he's just kind of watching what they're doing for hours and he's kind of kicked back on, on the sidewalk of the Western Street with a wooden sidewalk with a railing in front and his boots and his spurs kind of kicked up on there, white hat pulled down, shading the sun from his eyes, chewing on a little uh, hay straw or something. And he's like, well, this is really interesting. And then he begins to say this. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he's a God, either he's musing or he's relieving himself. <laughs> or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. This is smack talk. Your God 
is going potty. In other words, your God isn't a real God. He's not a true God. What you have built up for yourselves, what you have put up to scratch the itch of your selfish nature and what you want won't see you through. It's not real. It's the same for many of us who have false gods in our lives and we think money, 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 money will support me. Money will hold me up in the middle of my trial and my difficulty. Or this person, this person will see me through. Now, we don't think of them as our God, but we find our sufficiency in some other person or this drink or this substance or the thing that I view. This is the thing that will see me through and provide for me and will answer in my time of need. No, it won't. Your God's going potty. It will not hold you up. It will not see you through. They get real upset when they hear this kind of thing. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. That, that just simply means late afternoon, early evening. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. There is only one true God. You will not find the answer that your soul is longing for. You will not find the peace and direction in anything else than the one true God who has revealed himself to us through his son, Jesus Christ. That's it. Now at this moment, They've been dancing and chanting and cutting themselves, just carrying on. And I imagine at this moment that Ahab, now he's anxious. Now uncertainty is filling Ahab's mind. And he's thinking, these, these prophets that I've hired, they're no good. I need to buy myself some better prophets here. And now it's Elijah's turn. So what Elijah does, he goes down to an old, broken down altar. And it's old and broken down because nobody's been worshiping God. They've been worshiping Baal. They've been worshiping themselves and whatever they might want for their own lives. And God's altar, the worship of God, has just gone by the wayside. And so he fixes up that old altar. And he puts the sacrifice on top of it. And then he has a trench dug around that whole altar. And he says, let's cover it with water. Go out and get some water. Pour it on the sacrifice. And they pour it on the sacrifice. And they do it so many times. They pour so much water on that altar and on that sacrifice that the whole trench is just filled now with water. This sacrifice is absolutely drenched. There's no way this thing is gonna catch on fire. Verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, in this moment, in this prayer, at the very beginning, reminding everybody who God has always been to them. The God of Abraham, establishing Abraham, his people, his family, a nation, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, Israel. This is the God of then, and in this moment, it is the God of 
now. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Of course they did. What else would you do if you see something that powerful, that convincing, that in a moment of impossibility that God shows up and consumes every single thing in its path? Of course they did. They bow before God and they cry, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah has all those false prophets, 850 of them gathered up and killed no one is applying for the position of prophet of Baal. Not anymore. Black cowboy hats are moving on down that street like tumbleweed. They're all dead. And all of Israel has turned their heart back to the one true God because of this showdown. Meanwhile, in the distance, there's a little rain cloud that begins to form. And that little rain cloud begins to grow and grow and grow. And Elijah goes to Ahab, who's been sweating it and nervous, and he says, Ahab, you best be a getting. There's a goalie washer coming. So Ahab, he gets in his chariot, his horses, he hightails it out of there. And Elijah, filled by the Spirit of God, and I think a bit of adrenaline about what's just happened, outran those horses. Elijah goes all the way back home and when he gets home, guess who greets him at the door? Jezebel. And Jezebel's honked off. She ain't happy. And when Jezebel ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And she says, you wait till I get my hands on Elijah, the man of God. And he, she, she has word sent to Elijah. Elijah, by this time tomorrow, I'm going to kill you. Now, what would you do if you were Elijah. I mean, you've seen God's miraculous provision for three years. You've had birds feeding you. You've had a widow taking care of every one of your needs. You just got done with a showdown of 850 false prophets. You licked them all. Then a small rain cloud grows into a torrential rain, and through the power of God, you have brought rain and water to a thirsty land. If you found out, and you were Elijah, that now one woman threatens you, what would you do? The next verse tells us that Elijah was afraid. He was afraid and he ran for his life. He tucked his tail between his legs and he ran 100 miles away to Beersheba. And when he's there in Beersheba, he's just distraught. And it says that he wanders out into the wilderness and he longs for God just to kill him. God, just take me out. The Bible tells us he sits down underneath a broom tree. He's waiting to die. He's so distraught. But instead of die, God sends a ministering angel his way. 
And, and this ministering angel gives him food and water. Now, as I look at this, he has had ravens feed him, a widow feed him, and now a miraculous angel feeding him. I look at that, and I'm like, I get the grumpy waiter at Applebee's. This guy, I mean, look at how God's providing. And so once again, God provides. Just a whole bunch of mercy for Elijah. And based on the strength of what he received from that miraculous meal, he gets up, and Elijah starts walking even further away. And he goes all the way to Mount Horeb. And he's on Mount Horeb, hiding in a cave. And while he is there on Mount Horeb, hiding in this cave, this is a moment that God asks Elijah a question. And I believe it's the same kind of question that God would pose to any one of us who are facing trials and difficulties. Any one of us who has uncertainty in our life and we're not quite sure how everything is going to work out and we find ourselves in a place that we didn't anticipate in ever being. This is a question, it's the question that reminds us how quickly we can forget all of God's past faithfulness for us. It is a question that is raised that reminds us here of just how we react in fear and we try to manage our life on our own and, and put our hands all over everything to meet those deep down desires that we have. This is the question that snaps us back into reality after we've gotten ourselves in some pretty tight predicaments and pickles because we put our hands all over our lives because we looked into the future and what we had was fear and uncertainty. And so God moves in the direction of Elijah and then he asked this question, verse nine, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing? In other words, didn't I, didn't I provide for you? Didn't I care for you? Didn't I see you through all of the drama of the past? Haven't I been there for you, Elijah, every step of the way, meeting every single one of your needs? When you were thirsty, you had water. When you were hungry, you had food. When you needed shelter, I gave it to you. Haven't I been here for you? What are you doing here? And Elijah responds. And he says, well, I've been working hard for you. And now I'm the only prophet left. And so God is very merciful to Elijah in the moment. And he says, I, I want you to get out of this cave. So he moves to the, the face of the cave. And the Bible tells us that God moved in his direction. And when he goes there to the cave and he is near the exit there, he finds that there's a wind. There's this great wind and it comes through and it tears at the rocks and the mountains. But God wasn't in the wind. And then it says after the wind, there was an earthquake. And the earthquake shook that mountain but God wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but God wasn't in the fire. The wind, the earthquake, the fire are all ways that people would have expected a Baal to answer. But God was in none of those things. It tells us that next, there was a gentle whisper. I don't know what God said in that whisper. I don't know if he said, come closer. But then he poses another question again, same question to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah answers the same way. <laughs> I've been very jealous and zealous of you. I've worked hard for you. And now I'm the only prophet left. I'm out here on my own. That's what I'm doing. Elijah assumed 
because he could not see God at work in that moment, that God wasn't at work, that God wasn't doing anything. Haven't there been times in your life that you thought God wasn't there? Haven't there been moments in your life you thought, man, I'm on my own. God's not here. He's not answering my prayers, not the way that I want him to answer my prayers. God doesn't care about me. Maybe he cares about others. Maybe I've done something wrong, but God isn't actively involved in my life right now, and so it really just kind of depends on me because I'm out here on my own. Thank you very much, God, for nothing. Elijah assumed that since God was silent, that God wasn't doing anything. But God, in his mercy, he has a little chat with Elijah, and he begins to reveal all that God has been doing behind the scenes while Elijah has been hundreds of miles away with his tail tucked between his legs. God has been busy at work, even when Elijah couldn't see it, even when he couldn't recognize it. And so God lets Elijah in on the plan. 1 Kings 19, verse 15. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. So God's been working on Hazael's heart. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. God's gonna change the leadership. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. You're not alone, Elijah. I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed down to the Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So maybe at this point, Elijah begins to think, what am I doing here? Why did I run? How did I come to this place? Any time in our lives that we forget God's past faithfulness, his faithfulness in our past, it causes us to run to places that we don't need to be. Maybe you have a story or two in your own life of how you have run to a place that you never intended to be. Maybe you found yourself with a person that you shouldn't be with or involved in addiction that you knew you should not have, or a behavior. And some of us in this room can look back and we find moments in our lives where we took matters into our own hands because we failed to factor God's past faithfulness into our present, which takes us into our future. In fact, some of you may be in the room today and you would have to say, I'm in a place that I shouldn't be. I'm involved with someone or something or a behavior, or I have run from God to try to meet my own needs. And in that place, if you will get quiet enough to hear the gentle whisper of God, you would hear him say, just like he did to Elijah, what are you doing here? And you would have to say, God, because I forgot your past faithfulness, I forgot to factor you into my future, and so I ran. Here's the point I wanna make. When you forget God's faithfulness in the past, you will not factor him into your future. And if you fail to factor him into your future, you will face fear. When you forget God's faithfulness in your past, you will not factor him into your future. 
And if you fail to factor them into your future, friend, you will face fear. You will be overwhelmed. That's why it's so important that we remember, that we remember a God who is always faithful. Haven't I been there for you? Haven't I seen you through? How did you get to where you are if it weren't for me? What are you doing here? You see, if I forget to factor in God's past faithfulness, all I end up with is fear. But when I begin to think back on all that God has done, all of his faithfulness to me, that's the moment that I begin to face an uncertain future with confidence, even though it remains uncertain, because I know who God has been and who he is and who he will always be for me. So I would say if you get to this place where you've tried to manage life on your own, meet your own needs, find your own bail, if you will, and you find yourself having run from God, the wisest thing that you could do in that moment is to say, God, I forgot to factor you in to my future. So I ran, but I'm coming back. God's past faithfulness will see us through into the future. The psalmist wisely put it like this in Psalm 77. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? What God is great like our God? The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. I would just encourage you, because of our nature and how we are wired as human beings, we are wired in such a way that we very naturally forget all of God's past faithfulness. So I would encourage you, start a new habit. Start to write down your prayers, record them, and then you record the answers to those prayers because your heavenly Father answers every single one of those. Yes, no, wait, he is responding. I would encourage you to get a notebook, start writing down all the blessings that God brings into your life, and then in the middle of your trial, in the middle of your uncertainty, when you are tempted to move in your own direction to meet your own needs and your own sufficiency and your own way, you open up that book and you become reminded of all of the great deeds of our faithful Father. The Lord, he is God. Let's pray. Father, for all my friends in this room, every single one of us face an uncertain future because we're not God, we're not you. We can't know everything. We can't control everything. But you can. You can, and you have invited us to know you, the one true God, to love you in your holiness, and to invite your holiness into our lives. So today, Father, we submit once again to you, to your lordship, to your leadership. Father, lead us and guide us as we begin to push in with prayer, not just saying we need some help here, but Lord, I have desires deep down in my heart, and I will place them into your hands and find sufficiency in you, not in me, not in another person, not in this world, but in the one who made me and created me and loved me and sent your son, Jesus Christ, and your spirit to fill me and lead me. And we will remember.
we remember your goodness and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love for you to join us at one of our weekend worship services. For service times and information about BRCC, be sure to check out brookvilleroad.cc. God bless you.